Well, last week we had some technical issues, so this week I came prepared. I've got my laptop, my cell phone, I've got everything, I'm ready. Let's pray together. God, we love you, and we thank you for this morning. Uh, we truly never will know how much it costs to see our sin upon that cross, God. But the idea that we'll have all of eternity to just lavish you with our praise and it will never get old. It will continue to sing, Holy, holy, holy is God Almighty. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We love you and we pray that you truly would teach us today what it means to be your church. That you wouldn't send us forth from this place as a bunch of rebels, as a bunch of individuals, but that you would build us up through the through the Spirit and your leading to be that temple, to be the body, to be the bride, and to be your church. We love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. So we've been, we began this series uh, not too long ago talking about back to the basics. Back to the basics. Because I think sometimes when you don't get back to just the fundamentals, things can go a little crazy. And so last week we talked about being spirit-led and what that means. And if you missed that sermon, it's building on the vision of Poetry Baptist Church. A spirit-led church revealing Christ through unity and worship. And each week, we're going to break down one of those sections of our vision of what it is to be Poetry Baptist Church and what God has called us. So that when folks come here and they say, what are you guys about? What's the most important thing? What's the vision of where you are today and where God is leading you that you can say that the vision of Poetry Baptist Church is a spirit-led church revealing Christ through unity and worship. And today we're going to be talking about the church and ask ourselves, are we a church? And I think we have to ask ourselves, what is it? If you're familiar with Old Testament scriptures, there was a time when the nation of Israel was in the desert and they were wandering and they were complaining about the fact that they didn't have food and water and they called out to God and God made this stuff, manna, fall from heaven. Manna. It's literally translated, what is it? And so I think that's an appropriate question for us to ask when we think about the church because I think we've got some really wonky ideas about what the church is. Is it about humanitarian effort? Is it about feeding the poor? Is it about being nice to people when they walk in the door? And so today we're going to explore, the whole focus is on what is it? What is the church? We said this a little while ago in the children's sermon. Our purpose is to glorify God in all things at all times forever. That's it. That's our purpose. And as we've said in the past that when we get our function and we take that and we stick it up there and we knock purpose out of the way, things get a little crazy. Things get a little wonky. I was looking this week and watching a video the idea of uh, a show that was on HBO, this uh, weekly series, and the guy who's the host of the show was talking about how many of these televangelists on TV, 
These guys that are uh, pitching to their congregations that they need to raise money for a $65, million jet. And their congregations send them in the seed money because they think in doing so that they're going to be redeemed from their lupus, that they're going to be rescued from their cancer by sending in this seed money. And see, people out there in the world who are lost, deluded, disillusioned, oftentimes what they're exposed to on television about Christianity and the church, that's their conception of what it is. Are we doing a good job of changing that? Hmm. Our function to serve. See, it's not determined by the IRS. The IRS says we've got about 14 points. And if you meet some of those points, it doesn't have to be all of them. Do you have a place where you gather together? It could be somebody's house. It could be a network studio. It could be a building like this. And if you have a creed and a set of beliefs and a doctrine, and the guy that was the host of the TV show said, you know, there's a lot of things that a lot of different people believe. And so we could be a church, and then my house could become tax-deductible. And I really want us to understand that unless we really are functioning, as the Bible says, God's church, his bride and his body are supposed to function, then we really don't have anything to say to this guy. We don't really have anything to say to our neighbors and the people that say, what really is it that makes you a church? Are you a member of the body? See, it's not a place that you you visit on Easter or on Christmas. It's not a social club. A place for a bunch of nice people to gather together. Humanitarian efforts. It's not a place for legalistic curmudgeons to point their fingers and snarl at people in the world because they don't live up to their standards. It's not a place for ritual and ceremony. So I've told you some of the things that it's not, but what is it? Revelation 7, 9 John, the writer of Revelation, said, I looked and I saw a great multitude from every nation and tribe and people and tongue standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It's a snapshot of this diverse people. And I wonder, is that our view of the church? Or is our view of the church, we just want to be around people who look like us? People who hold the same views and the same values that I hold. And as I shared with those kids just a little while ago, see, when that's our view of church, that what we end up being is a big ear or a nose. We're we're redundant, right? Because there's no diversity. And when you read this, it's talking about people from every nation and tribe and people and tongue standing before the throne. Those who were redeemed by Christ and the cross that were indwelled by the Holy Spirit that see the kingdom on a day-to-day basis. It's a snapshot of the church. Matthew twenty four fourteen. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Do you see it? Do you see the common theme? It's not just people who look like me. It's not just people who believe exactly what I believe. See, in our culture today, is that we can have a church split over the craziest things, right? We've had people leave our church over the last year, year and a half, two years, and it all boils down to it just is personal preference. 
Pastor, I don't like the fact that sometimes you wear flip-flops when you preach, so we're going to go down the we're going to go down the road. You know what, Pastor, we don't like the fact that you flip-flop Sunday school and the worship service, so we're going to go on down the road. You know what, Pastor, we don't really like the way that you talk so loud. We don't like the fact that, you know, the the sanctuary looks a certain way. We don't like the fact that you bought round tables instead of rectangular tables. We don't like the fact that when we do the Lord's Supper, we've got these little plastic cups with a cellophane top that peels off instead of crackers and wine. There are churches that split over the craziest things. And when you look at this, when it talks about people from every tribe and tongue and nation becoming one united kingdom in eternity in heaven for all, See, when we get there, folks, the reality is, is that God's not going to pull you and say, what's your personal preference? Oh, yeah, you're going you're gonna to want to be in this section of heaven over here. Yeah, that, that's for you. And what did, what did you like? You like green carpet? You're a green carpet guy? Yeah, you're going to want to go to the, the far end over there. And what was that? You, you don't like grape juice? You like wine? Oh, no, you like wine and not grape juice. Okay, so, yeah, you're going to want to go over there. And you guys, what's your preference? Yeah, you don't like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So that's going to be upstairs, down the hall, and to your left. Let's just all kind of get into the places that we like and not really be a united kingdom of priests. Let's not be one body, even though it says it over and over and over again in Scripture. It's really just about me, right? Jesus died for my sins, mine. I don't know about you, but I know he died for mine. And I've got a personal relationship with him. And when I go to church, you guys really kind of annoy me. You guys are really kind of annoying. You know? You don't really say amen enough when I preach. So, you know what? I think I'm going to go start my own church down the road. And I'm going to start self-selecting. I think you should come, and you should come. But the rest of you guys, y'all stay here. Don't, don't come down the road to the new church that we're planning. And we laugh, and there's a lot of smiles out there, but isn't that how we act in our day-to-day life? We wake up in the morning, and do you see the kingdom? Or are you waiting for it down the road? Hmm. Vision, we read this. We talked about it. A spirit-led church revealing Christ through unity and worship. That's the vision of poetry. And so we got to do this thing, this thing called scrutiny. We've got to examine stuff. We gotta find out because, see, there's some problems that we have. We get kind of stuck on ourselves. It's functional scrutiny. It's not just this kind of superficial, you just kind of, I was talking to Connor yesterday, and I said, when Paul talks about examining yourselves, and I said, look out the front window of the house, and he looked, and I said, wait, look away, and I said, tell me what you saw, and he said, I saw some bushes and trees, And I said, okay, now I want you to walk over there to the front window and I want you to really scrutinize. I really want you to examine. And he said, you know, there's a cobweb, you know, right there. I said, don't, don't, don't tell mama about that. Look outside the window and you know, you can see some wood chips now and you can see that the, the leaves that are on the top of the bushes, that they're newer, they're greener. It's a completely different shade of green from when I trimmed them off and now they're growing back, but you didn't see that at first. And so what God wants us to do on a regular basis is not only to examine ourselves, but to examine the body of Christ. Are we doing that? Are we scrutinizing stuff? Because when we do, we're going to find out a couple of things. We're going to find out that there's this 
Satan. We call him Satan with a capital S. And I'm not going to get mad at you if you call him Satan like a, a, a personal noun with a capital. Some people want to draw swords about that. You're a capital S Satan? Okay, well, we're going to go down the street where they do the lowercase Satan. There we go again. He's the accuser. He's the adversary. He's the tempter, the devil. And Scripture tells us that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And we give into it just like that. Scripture tells us that he poses as an angel of light. See, we think that he's, ah, you know, the pitchfork and he's red, big horns and he's shooting fire out of his fingertips and breathing smoke. And when I see that guy, I know to run. But the problem is, is that scripture says he poses as an angel of light. Oh, that looks pretty good. That angel of light right over there. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to go down there and visit that church where they're not really teaching and preaching the gospel. They're, they're, they're talking about we can kind of have it our way like Burger King, right? So let's go down there because that's a little bit easier to digest. They're tickling our ears a little bit more than Pastor Kevin does over there at Poetry. Not only does it say he poses as an angel of light, but it says that he prowls like a roaring lion. And I always thought of that as this big, scary lion, right? Rawr, roaring lion. And I thought, you know what scripture oftentimes refers to Jesus as? The Lion of Judah. (gasps) See, Satan's not so stupid to act like this big scary cat that wants to eat your head off. He's posing as an angel of light and he prowls around pretending to be Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe that, read the book of Revelation. Multitudes are led astray and they worship the beast. And he desires to sift us, to turn us and toss us about. Did you know that according to the Barna Group, about 75% of American Christians, not Americans, American Christians don't believe that Satan is a legit entity, that he's not our adversary, that he's not our enemy. He's a symbol of bad things. When we talk about being in this cosmic battle for the souls of humanity and we deny the enemy's existence, guess what, folks? How do you think we're doing? How do you think we're doing? Not so great, right? 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5, For the weapons of our war are not the fleshy variety, but God-powered. What happens when we lay down all of those weapons because we deny the fact that sin exists, we deny the fact that there's an enemy, we deny the fact that we need a Savior to go to a cross and die in our place, we deny the fact of all of these things the Scripture says are true. And what we do is we just lay down. And we surrender the battlefield and we lose the war. See, there's another problem. It's not just Satan. It's sin. Satan really doesn't need much help when it comes down to it, right? He doesn't really need much help. See, before sin and Satan were really kind of in the system, Adam, it really didn't take a whole lot. Maybe he got frustrated with Eve over, maybe it was decades, maybe it was centuries. We really don't know. But at some point, he just decided, you know what? Go talk to the serpent. Knock yourself out. Have a blast. But then he didn't just walk away. He neglected his ministry. 
to serve her and to watch over her. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't give up on his bride. See, we have this problem with sin because the heart in Jeremiah 17.9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things. All things. Did you wake up this morning taking captive every thought, making it obedient to Christ? Or when it fires through your head, do you just say, well, that, that must be a good thought because I read it in Reader's Digest. I saw it on the internet. I watched a video on YouTube about it. Dr. Phil, Oprah, they talked about it. It's got to be true. If Oprah talks about it, it's got to be true. Careful. There's a way that seems right to a man. And that's not just talking about males. It's talking about humanity. There's a way that seems right to us. But in the end, see, the outcome is death's highway. See, when you start thinking that when I have a thought and things seem right to me, and because I'm in a position of authority in my life, whether anybody appointed me there or not, I'm self-appointed. I'm the captain of my own ship and my own destiny. I don't need anybody telling me what to do. Hey, parents, you got any teenagers that maybe you... Yeah? Well, guess what? It's not really that different. Before you go pointing the finger at the teenagers, it's not really that different in the body of Christ. Who gets to tell me what to do? I didn't elect that pastor. I don't like what he has to say. He's a little abrasive, quite quite frankly. He steps on my toes. I'm going to go down the street. Sin. Mm. So we got to scrutinize. We got to look, right? Are we on purpose? Are we functioning? Are we doing the things that God wants us to do? Because we're talking about the church. We're not talking about individual salvation. See, we've been redeemed into the bride and the body of Christ for a purpose to glorify God. And there's a function that's involved to serve others and to watch over our relationships with God and with other people. How are we doing? How are we doing? we got to scrutinize. And see, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves, plural. Who's he talking to? He is talking to the church, and he was talking to one specific church at that time, the Corinthians, because they were notorious for their debauchery and sin. But I guarantee that there's not a single thing that went on in the Corinthian church that doesn't go on in our churches today. I think we'd make them look like a bunch of prudes. Examine yourselves, church in Corinth, church in poetry. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the face. See, because your tendency is to think that you're good. Your tendency is to think that I've got it all figured out because I'm listening to my heart. Just listen to your heart. And scripture says that your heart is deceitful above all things. Don't listen to your heart. Listen to God's word. See whether or not you're in the faith. You've got to test yourselves. Don't just Vincent test Vincent. Vincent test Pastor Kevin. Is what he's saying up there true? If it's not, then we're going to have a conversation. 
Pastor, I, I really don't think what you're talking about out there really lines up with God's word. But instead, what happens a lot of times is people get their feelings hurt. They don't like your doctrine. They don't like the truth of the word. And then they just mosey on down the road. I want to ask you a quick question. Why do you think that there's so many people in Joel Osteen's church? Why do you think there's so many people in Creflo Dollar's church? Why do you think there's so many people tuning in to watch John Hagee? On television. Why? Why? And then you look at a little church in poetry where the gospel is being preached and people are loving on one another and we're edifying one another and we haven't forsaken meeting together as it says in Hebrews to build one another up. In unity and in the body. You say, well, this Sunday's not really good for me, you know, because I was up last night and, you know, I, I had this thing that I had to do. How would you like it if your kidney this morning just decided, you know what, I'm going to stay in bed? Yeah, I know that we got stuff to do. I know that, you know, toxins need to get filtered out of the body, but I, I'm just going to take a day. I'm just going to call in. If we're the body and all the parts of the body aren't functioning, What's going to happen? Can the body function simply because Pastor Kevin shows up on Sundays and preaches a sermon? Is that the body? So what's your role? Do you realize Christ Jesus is in you? Body of Christ in Corinth? Body of Christ in poetry that's becoming a kingdom that's going to be united with all believers throughout all time in heaven forever. The eternal temple. Are you working on being a part of that? You got it on autopilot. You got it in neutral. Hmm. So what is it? What is this church thing? We're asking a lot of questions here. I don't know how much, how much of an answer we're coming up with. See, there's this history of corruption. Adam, no functional ministry, right? Cain, no favorable offering to God. Ham, Noah's son, after the flood, and God had wiped out all of humanity except for one family. And it turns out that, you know what? A flood's really not going to solve our problem. It's not. Saul, the nation of Israel, said, we want a king, God, so that we can be like all of the other nations around us. And God, ah. Oh, but I called you out to be a kingdom of priests. I called you out to be distinct, to be holy, to be different than everyone else, to herald my, my blessings and my glory to the ends of the earth so that people could be saved from their sin. What a great affront to God that Israel stuck their finger in God's face and said, you know what, we don't really want you. We don't really want you, God. We like this guy Saul over here because he's about six foot four, six foot five. He looks like he's, you know, he must be doing Bowflex or something. He's kind of jacked. He's looking good. Dark skin, you know, he's got his hair all slathered back. Kind of looks like Elvis, maybe. Hey, hey. Saul's looking good, and we want him to be our king. Can you imagine what that did to God's heart? But you have me. You've got me, and instead you want Saul. And Saul led them astray. It's not just the bad guys of the Bible. Abraham, he sinned. 
but the difference is that he repented. Moses sinned, the difference is is that he repented. David sinned, the difference is he repented. I saw on Facebook this week a post about there's this huge, massive crowd of Jews in Jerusalem, and they're going up to this wall. And I didn't listen to the audio. But my guess is, is that they're saying that they're asking God to forgive them. They're saying, God, forgive us of our sins. And the reality is, is that God can't forgive you of your sin. God can't forgive you of your sin, Israel, anyone in humanity, unless you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter how many of you get together and go to a geographic location and you have a consensus because that's what Israel did with Saul. That's what Israel did in the time of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. How different is that from us today? I'm just going to do what I want to do. And they're wailing at this wall and they're asking God for forgiveness. And I don't know that they went in and they read Proverbs 28.9. See, because if you don't obey me, even your prayers are what? An abomination. So it doesn't matter how many of you gathered together. It doesn't matter what kind of oil. It doesn't matter how you dressed. It doesn't matter that you looked good, that you fasted for a month or ten days or two hours. It doesn't matter. Your prayers are an abomination. And before we get too excited, folks, see, there's a problem that shows up in the New Testament too. See, Jesus, the Messiah, the one anticipated from even before the beginning, he's born, the incarnation, he's baptized... He lives a perfect life. He goes to the cross. He rises from the dead. He ascends to heaven. He sends the Spirit. He's interceding for us. And yet, it's all smooth sailing, right? No more problems, because Jesus died at the cross. Wrong. Virtually every letter in the New Testament, sin is in the church. Paul rebukes it. He chastises people for it. People living with relatives and mothers and mothers living with son-in-laws. All of the debauchery and sin that's going on in the church and Paul's writing about it. When you get together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's a madhouse. People are diving to the front of the line. I want a snack, man. I'm hungry. I didn't have breakfast this morning. You forgot what the symbolism is of the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And instead, you've turned it into this show. It's not just there, but it's also in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, when you open it up, the church of Ephesus, the Ephesians, Jesus says that you've forgotten your first love. And he says that you need to repent. you got to hear what I'm saying. The church in Pergamum. He says that you hold to the teachings of Balaam. Repent. Hear what I got to say. The church in Thyatira. You tolerate Jezebel. Hear what I have to say. You're being led astray. The church in Sardis. This is a really good one. You've got a reputation of being alive. How would you like to hear from Jesus? You know, you guys down there at Poetry, you've got a reputation for being alive, but it really just takes just kind of peeling back the cellophane and it turns out that you're dead. 
It turns out that you're just showing up to check a box. Turns out that you're not really the body of Christ. It turns out that you're not really sacrificial. It turns out that you're not really giving out of the abundance and overflow of your heart. You're not like that widow dropping in everything that she has. You're just kind of showing up and going through the motions. Is that what we want to hear? You got a reputation of being alive, but you're dead, you're blind, and you're naked. And he says, wake up! The church in Laodicea, you're neither hot or cold. And Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out. Repent. All throughout the New Testament, all throughout the New Testament, rebuke, chastisement. And it's about the people of God who allow themselves to be led astray. So we want to talk about this idea of functional humility, right? Because it's something that we have to see in the church. Humility. See, out there in the world, there's this idea of humility that people walk around and they pretend to be humble, right? Oh no, you go first. Let me hold the door for you. That's not the kind of humility that we're talking about. That's not the kind of humility that Christ had when he went to the cross. That's not the kind of humility that God had when he came down from heaven. And he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or pursued. But when God said in eternity past, hey, how are we going to work this thing out? Because we know that humanity is going to sin against us. We know that they're going to turn their back. They know they're going to say, nah. And Jesus raised his hand and he said, Father, send me. And in Revelation we read the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the cosmos. It wasn't something that surprised God in the least. That's the kind of humility that Philippians 2.3 is talking about. Do nothing, church. Poetry Baptist Church, do nothing. It doesn't say do 50% of things. It doesn't say do 80%. It doesn't do 5 or 2 or 1. It says do nothing. Nothing out of selfish ambition or empty pride, but in the humility of Christ, the same kind of humility that Christ demonstrated, consider others more important than yourselves. Are we building a brand here at Poetry? Is that our goal? It's not mine. There are churches out there that they want to build their brand. There are parachurch organizations that when they go and they serve places, they're like everything that they've got has their name and their logo slathered on it. And they've got CEOs that are running these parachurch companies, organizations, who are making millions of dollars. And when you give to those organizations and you're withholding money from the church, that God said that's who you need to be given to. See, because the church is the vehicle that God ordained as the body and the bride. Not Samaritan's Purse. Not these parachurch organizations. And that's not me lobbying for you to put more money into this. I'm just telling you what the Word says. In humility, consider others more important than yourselves. In Galatians 5, Paul's writing to the, this church. It's not a specific church. The galactic region, the Galatians, is to an entire region. It's not to one specific church like Ephesus or Romans. It's to this galactic region, the churches in Galatia. And he says, you were, 
Y'all were, plural, you were running a good race. It started out looking pretty good. See, you got on fire. There was maybe an evangelistic revival and everybody said, Yeah, Jesus, I'm giving my life to you. And then a week later, yeah, it's back to kind of the same old, same old. So was that something that the Holy Spirit really kindled a fire within you and caused you to give up everything and to pursue God with your whole heart? Or was it just something that was kind of cool, like going to a concert? Yeah, it felt good for a while. It was kind of like a high. I felt pretty good, but it's not really done anything to change my life. You were running a good race, but do not use your freedom in Christ to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Anybody know what that is? What's the one command? I hope I hope in a room full of people who profess to be believers, I'm not trying to embarrass you, but Love your neighbor as yourself. One command. See, because you can't really... He doesn't start off saying love God and love your neighbor here. It's said elsewhere in Scripture. But right here, Paul says, because you can't really love your neighbor if you don't love God. If I give you a breakfast burrito under a bridge because you're homeless, have I done anything to change your eternal address? Have I done anything to change your eternal trajectory? And so we've got groups out there that are going out, let's feed the homeless, let's do these nice things, and they're not bad. But that can't be the most important thing. And the ministries of Poetry Baptist Church, first and foremost, is always preach the gospel. If you come forward and say, Pastor, i got a great idea for a ministry, my first question to you is going to be, how is the gospel going to be present in that ministry? Well, we just wanted to make cats for hats. We just want to make sweaters for doggies because there's people out, you know, around here in poetry that have dogs and in the wintertime it gets cold and we just want to make sweaters for them. How is the gospel going to become alive in and through you, through whatever ministry that you do? And if you get on fire like Mandy Jewett did when she said, Pastor, please, please let me start a women's Bible journaling ministry. And see, that's just the platform. It's not all about drawing in our Bibles. It's about people coming together and loving on one another and being the gospel for one another. That's ministry. That's the church. So what is it? What is this thing, the church? It's a functional humanity. If you don't remember anything else today, folks, it's a functional humanity. We talked about the function that God created from the very beginning, Genesis 2.15, to serve and to watch over. We're not really serving people unless we're doing it to glorify God, right? We're not. So to be a functional humanity, it has to be about glorifying God with our purpose. And we're going to look at some places in Scripture. The Lord looked with favor, favor on Abel and his offering. Do you remember that? See, because Abel came forward with his first fruits, the best stuff that he had, and he wasn't about to go into the presence of God without investing time and energy and effort, and he's looking, and he's like, what's the best stuff that I can bring to God? Where do you see Abel in yourself? 
How often do you find yourself saying, when I show up to Poetry Baptist Church on Sundays in that building, when I'm part of the body of Christ that calls itself Poetry Baptist Church, what's my best stuff? Or do I just show up like the baby chick with the mouth open? Feed What's your part? It's not just Abel. Job. Job was a contemporary of Abraham, scholars believe. And Job is making sacrifices, and he's crying out to God, and he's interceding for them in prayer, saying, perhaps, I don't know, but being that I'm a dad and I know my kids, I'm pretty sure that they've done something to offend you, Lord. I'm pretty sure. Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And I want to do something. Church, who are we interceding for? Who are we loving the way that Job loved his own kids? Anyone? And what part, what role do you have in that? God said to Abram, before he was Abraham, he said, Abram, go to a place that I'm going to show you. And we find out in verse 4 of chapter 12 that Abram went... And God, knowing that he was going to do that, that he was going to be obedient, he said, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Not just his physical seed, but his model of faith. When God says, do something, get up, serve, preach the gospel, give someone a Bible, love that person, you go, I'm not really sure, God, if that was you or was that a gas bubble? I'm not really sure. I know, I know, I, I know, I think, I think I heard you, but see, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna fleece you. Let me, let me test you four or five times like Gideon. Let me make you jump through some hopes and I'm gonna see God if that's really what you want me to do. And it goes back to that verse in Proverbs about if you're not gonna be obedient, then even your prayers are an abomination. Functional humanity. Exodus 19.6, God called out the people of Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I remember when I was first a Christian, and I was saying, I'm a little offended that they're God's treasured possession, that somehow because I was born a different nationality, I wasn't born a Jew, that I'm not treasured by God? Look at the cross and tell me that you're not treasured by God. The reason why God called Israel his prized possession is treasure was that they were supposed to be right there at the epicenter of the known world. And they were supposed to be light and salt to all of the other nations. How'd that work out? How'd that work out? All the ends of the earth. David, the psalmist, writing and singing in the Psalms. You realize that David, he loved God so much that there's an entire book in the Bible that's just filled with an overflow of his heart for God. Do you ever find yourself in your car? Maybe it's in the bathroom or in the shower and you just can't contain it. And we do it in here and we gather together on Sunday mornings and John's up here just trying to pull it out of us. Come on, everybody, let's go. I want you to sing. And it's like, is that David? Is that a joyful song is unto the Lord? Does he get a hold of your heart and cause you to say, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to you, Lord. All the tribes of the nations will bow down before you. All of them. 
It's not just about me and my family. And it's not just about the tribe that I belong to. It's not just about Israel. It's about your blessing going to the ends of the earth to redeem and restore all of humanity. And I get to play a little bit of a part in that. In Isaiah 49.6, Isaiah is talking about the servant of the Lord and this prophecy comes to him. It says, it's too small a thing for you. It sounds like he's talking about Israel, but in the context, Israel falls short. So Israel partially fulfills it, but they fall short, but God's word never falls short. So it's anticipating a greater Israel. Someone who's not going to fail where Adam failed. Someone who's not going to fail where David failed. Someone who's not going to fail where the nation of Israel failed. And the kingships, and the priests, and the temple. Someone's going to come along and his name is Jesus Christ. And it says that it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation shall reach the ends of the earth. That was God's plan from the very beginning, everyone. The very beginning. And then we see in Revelation 1, 5 to 6, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, talking about Jesus, and has made us a kingdom. He's made us a kingdom, folks. He didn't die so that you could just have a little card in your back pocket that says, I don't have to go to hell anymore. Get out of hell free card. Because see, what I did is I said, Lord, Lord, I jumped through the hoops. I said everything in scripture. I profess with my lips and I believe in my heart. And Jesus is going to say to you the same way he said in Matthew is that I never knew you. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, he's made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Do y'all see the church? Do you see what God is calling us to be and to do? Ephesians 2, 15 through 16. This was supposed to be our focal text today, so this is where the sermon's supposed to begin at 11.26 on Sunday morning. So we're going to start here. Not really, we're almost done. He did this to create in himself one new humanity. He did what? He died on the cross for our sins to make us one new humanity. And in Ephesians, it's not just talking about us who are Gentiles. It's talking about, he did this in verse 16, so that he might reconcile both Jews and Gentiles to God in one body through the cross by which he put to death the hostility. He came and proclaimed good news of peace to you who are far away. That's us who are Gentiles. And peace to those who are near, the Jews, the people who had God's word. For through him, Christ, both have access in one body and one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints. That's everyone who would ever believe in God. Everyone. From the very beginning. Abel. Job. Abraham. All the way through to the end until that last person who God knows is going to receive the message, the good news, the gospel, and then the kingdom will come. See, it's built 
members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It doesn't say that there's a separate heaven, heaven for Israel. See, that's the, it's kind of like, you know, segregation back in the fifties. We've got the bathroom for the white folks and then we've got the back, the bathroom for the other folks over here. There's no segregation. It's one body, one temple. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. What is it? What is this church thing? There's some objectivity that's involved, folks. And this is about where I'm going to wrap up. See, that when we go into God's word, it's not just about your thoughts. Well, this is who Jesus is for me. This is what the church is for me. Well, I'm a Baptist. Well, I'm a Presbyterian. Well, I'm an Episcopalian. Well, I'm I'm an Assembly of God person. It doesn't matter. Are you functioning the way that God intended you to function, serving and watching over? Are you loving people into the kingdom? Are you? Are we? You're worthy because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the church, folks. In Matthew sixteen fifteen. Jesus was asking the disciples, he first started off and saying, who do people, who do those folks out there say that I am? And they had some ideas about, well, you're, they say that you're John the Baptist. They think that maybe you're Elijah. And then Jesus, he kind of got down right in their grill and he said, yeah, but, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? See, because that's the question, you, plural, Disciples, you, plural, Poetry Baptist Church, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Peter was pretty bold and he said, the Christ, you're Messiah. And I think at that point in Peter's walk, he had the Sunday school answer, right? Jesus, you're Messiah. I got it right. I checked the box. What do I get? A button? Do I get a, do I get a button on my Awana vest? Is that what I get? Do I get a cookie? And see, but then later on, Peter denied him three times. When you really know that he's the Christ, there's nothing that's ever going to stop you. Like the blind man that called out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, Jesus stopped. And the crowd told him to shut up and he got louder and louder and louder. Are you going to get louder? Are you going to herald his name in the valley of the shadow of death? This is where we started with, y'all were paid for with a price, therefore, glorify God in the body. Not in your individual body, that's part of it, but it's in the body of Christ, in the church, through the Spirit, which both of those things, the body and the Spirit, are God's. What is it? Are you truly part of the body of Christ? Let's pray together. God, we love you. And we know that you went to the cross not just to redeem and restore a bunch of individuals for our personal preferences, but you redeemed and restored us into one body, your church, the eternal bride. And God, I pray that you would give us a powerful ministry here at Poetry to kick down the gates of hell, to be light and salt for those who are lost, deluded, and disillusioned for your glory. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, 
Amen. What we do here at Poetry is that when the Word is preached, you're not just listening to Kevin Kelly, thank goodness, but you're listening to the Word of God. And I don't know what you heard today. It amazes me how every Sunday someone will say, this is what I heard you say, and this is what I heard from the Lord through you. I don't know what you heard today, but I know that you need to respond.